Good morning, church. It's so good for Sherry and I to be here again with you this morning. I love the weekend of Thanksgiving. I don't know how to get rid of this. The cord is short. How about if we go down? The, uh, I love Thanksgiving weekend. It's a time of family and a great blessing to be with their family. For many, not for everybody, but it's also generally the first Sunday in Advent. So the two holidays overlap. We got to sing Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, this morning, that great hymn that talks about the future and the hope. And uh, we also sang a, a song that was new for me, and we, that the last one we sang, and it says, A Foretaste of Deliverance, one of the lines. What a great line, because that's what the song of Moses is here after they've crossed the Red Sea. It's a foretaste of deliverance. And everybody knows about the crossing of the Red Sea, right? You've read about it. You've heard about it. You've seen a movie about it. Adults know about it. Children know about it. You scrabble in Sunday school about it. You draw pictures. Everybody knows the story. It's the redemptive event in the Old Testament. And here's how it goes, just to remind you. Uh, Moses and the people of Israel have escaped from Pharaoh's clutches, the Passover caused the death of all the firstborn males in Egypt, except for the people of God who had put blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, over their doors, and they escaped. And they ran off with all their neighbors, china, gold, silver, anything that wasn't nailed down, they took with them. And they head off into the desert on the way to the promised land. But instead of taking the short route, somehow they get off at Highway 113 and they're on the wrong road. It's the windy road instead of the straight one, right? And they end up out in the desert and they're wandering around and Pharaoh's spies let him know that they're wandering around and the Lord hardens his heart and he figures, I can get him. And so he goes out there leading his armies beside the sea and the people are hemmed in between Pharaoh's armies and the sea and they're just hoping against hope that they'll be okay. Instead, they begin to complain against Moses. And Moses says, what am I supposed to do? The Lord sent us out here and the Lord has him raise his staff and when he does, an east wind blows up and divides the sea. It's the scene you've seen in the movies, that great scene. And the people of God walk through on dry land. That's an extraordinary miracle. Not only the walls of water, but dry land. They don't sink in the bottom. And then Pharaoh and the armies follow in after them And when they're almost across, the wind dies down and they're swamped in and they go to the depths of the abyss. That's the well-known story, but most people don't know the top 40 hit that Miriam led after the deliverance when she got out the tambourine because all good worship is percussive in nature, right? Even that instrument properly played is a percussion instrument. And so... We're going to look at this story, this song. It's a great song. It's, it's hard to take a poem apart and look at it, but we're going to try to do it this morning, and I hope you'll be blessed by the foretaste of deliverance that we see in this song. In this, uh, in this song. And so this song has five phrases in it. I don't know if you caught that as you read it, but it has five different parts. Four of them are thanksgiving, and the last one is looking ahead. So phrase number one is verses one through five, and it tells us that God is a warrior. And because everybody forgets poetry, 
I'm going to take the time to reread these verses as we go through. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his chariot he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea, and the floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. You know, the song begins with a celebration of God's strength. Our great God, who is a warrior on behalf of his people, Yahweh, Jehovah, is his name. He is Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That's what Sabaoth, it's Hebrew for for Lord of hosts. And if you remember the song, Martin Luther puts that in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. The words go like this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You've sung that a hundred times and you didn't know what you were singing. The Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He is the Lord of hosts, and he must win the battle. And this is what happened to Israel. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my father's God, has delivered his people. Because the people were between the sea on the one hand and Pharaoh on the other hand, and even though they were armed for battle, and they were, they had no chance against Pharaoh. And isn't that what Luther recognized in his hymn? That if we trust in our own strength that we're going to lose, we're just not that strong. But you see, our God is a warrior. And the great news, the reason for the Israelite celebration, the reason for our thanksgiving is that he is a warrior for his children. You see, verse 1 says that God is highly exalted. He is risen up like a sea wave to defend his people. Verse 2 says that he is our song. He is our defender. Verse 3 says he is the Lord of hosts. And then verse 5 says that our warrior God covers Pharaoh with the flood, and they went down into the depths like a stone. I remember a friend of mine in college who didn't believe in the miracle of the Red Sea crossing, telling me that it was just marshland. He says, Jim, everybody knows it was the Reed Sea, and it was just marshland, and the Israelites could walk through, but Pharaoh's chariots got bogged down. Don't you realize that? And so I said, well, that, that's interesting, because they all drowned. So I guess they couldn't breathe in that knee-deep water that had the wheels bogged down in the marshland. They sank like a stone. I love the poetry here. It's so vivid. The Hebrew word for depths, for the abyss, is bimsalot. Sounds like a rock that's thrown into the water, doesn't it? You take the rock and you heave it out into the water and it goes bimsalot. In English, that's called an onomatopoeia. You know, a word that sounds like what it is. Like uh, it's the same as the word cuckoo. 
from a bird, a cuckoo clock. Cuckoo, it makes the noise that we call it. Or the word sizzle when you throw a steak on the grill. Or the word buzz when a bee is flying around. So when you throw paper or something light in the water, there's just a whisper of a sound. But when you throw a rock in there, there's that sound of finality. It goes out there, you heave it, it hits the water, and it goes, bim salute. And you know where it's going, right to the bottom. And that's what God did to Pharaoh and his armies. Phrase number two, God's right hand. Look at verse six. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You know, the divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah, appears in this song ten times. This song is so personal in its gratitude towards the Lord. Not content to, content to call him just God. It's like Jesus in the New Testament telling us to call the Lord Father. It becomes so relational when we worship him as Father and praise him as Jesus. So over and over again, the scriptures refer to God's right hand. In this phrase of the song, God's name, Jehovah, is attached to his right hand, the right hand of power. And over again, the scriptures talk about God's right hand. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, at the right hand of power, the scriptures say. And the incredible thing is this. God's right hand is not simply a reference to his power, but a reference to his saving power, his power to safeguard and deliver his people. In Psalm 16, David picks up on this imagery, and he says that because God is at his right hand, he will not be shaken. Isn't that a great image of the power of God to save? In other words, because God is beside him, there is no reason for fear. And then David goes on to say that what you find at God's right hand is, is not simply saving power, but eternal pleasures and everlasting joy. You know, it isn't the reward. It, it's not fire insurance from hell. That's not the reward of God being at your right hand. The reward of his salvation is everlasting joy. And it's not simply delivery from temporary circumstances, but the eternal glory that awaits every true child of God, which is fellowship with the Trinity. From all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have shared a mutual love and a mutual worship. And in the gospel, beloved, they share that with us. Peter says that we're partakers of the divine nature. And David says that it is a right hand of pleasure. Do you believe that, child of God? That real and lasting pleasure come from your relationship with God. And that real satisfaction in life comes from obedience. You see, in the midst of your circumstances, do you believe that God's right hand is majestic in power? That he can shatter 
your struggles. But more than that, that he is in control of your destiny. That he is working his purpose out in you and, and, and even through you. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, in verse 28. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things are worked together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, certainly the Israelites believed it. At least the day they crossed the Red Sea, they believed it. And, and, and well, they should. God's presence is ever before them as he leads them by day by the pillar of smoke and by night by a pillar of fire. They can always see God is right there. And no wonder the, the, the song says that God vanquished his enemies with burning anger that consumed them like a stubble. The pillar of fire ate them. And no wonder they, they refer to the power of God's breath, for they have seen God save them through the east wind. Even the wind is in God's control. So, beloved, can, can we trust him to control our lives for his purposes and our ultimate good? And the answer is yes, we can. Phrase number three, God's enemy overcome. Look at verse 9. He says, the enemy, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Yet you blew with your wind. The sea covered them and they sank like lead. In the mighty waters. You know, so often the enemies of God and his people boast in their great power. You know, you wonder sometimes when you see what the biblical worldview and the whole world makes sense from God's perspective, you, you wonder what, what are people thinking when they do the things they do. We see our own culture being overtaken by progressive humanism, and you wonder what, what are they really thinking about? Do they really think? Do people really believe they're in control of themselves and of their own destiny? And that if they do everything right, that government will turn out for good and the cities will turn out for good and I'll turn out for good? Pe people really believe that. And you wonder, how can they? So often the enemies of God and his people boast in their great power. And you wonder, when will people learn that they can't thwart God's will? Here's what... Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. You know, our lives are like a fountain and there is a constant input. You're, it's like you're pouring from two glasses. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, you see? So you got to figure out what are you going to pour into your life, spirit or flesh? You're going to live to please God or are you going to live to please yourself? Because your life is going to overflow into other people's lives. And the question is, is what's flowing out of your fountain? Do you fill it with spirit or fill it with flesh? You see, tyrants and dictators and the intelligentsia all believe that at some level that they're going to escape God and his judgments. That if they simply ignore him, then he's going to disappear. 
You know, one of the great examples of that is Saddam Hussein. After over 20 years of getting his way every day, of torturing and abusing anyone who got in his way or disagreed with him, I'm sure Saddam Hussein was certain that this would never happen, that his his way would never be stopped. He was like a god in Iraq. He had absolute power. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 2. He says, why do the nations say, where is their god? You know, ISIS is asking that question. Where is their God? Nobody can stop us. Verse 3 says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's what David was talking about, about the right hand of God's pleasure. He does whatever pleases him. He is working out his purposes in our lives and in theirs. God's purposes always stand and nothing thwarts his will, especially not petty dictators of third-rate countries. Listen to what the psalmist says about our Savior. Psalm 110, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. You know, the left denies God's judgments. They say it's not going to happen. That's barbaric. God is not judgmental. And we go, oh, yes, he is. But you see, conservatives, those of us who think we're on the right and in the right, we deny God's judgments as well. Every time you gossip and slander and criticize and backbite, you see, you deny the judgments of God as well. Unless I say you, I should say we deny the God's judgments as well. So this time it's, it's Pharaoh. All of a sudden he thinks he's done a stupid thing. He thinks he's come to his senses. He let all these slaves go and they went out with treasure. So he decides to pursue them and in his boasting he speaks of all the things that he will do to them when he catches them. He arrogantly and instantly gives vent to his cruel plan. He's he's already seen God's power in the ten plagues, and yet, and his own son has died, and yet he still thinks that he can overcome. He's still proud and arrogant. And you know how the Lord responds, right? Psalm 2 says he laughs, that our God sits in heaven and laughs like a father with an angry three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. You know, you young fathers, there's no reason to get mad at your children when they rebel. You should just chuckle because really, a three-year-old flopping about on the ground, all they're doing is producing dust out of the carpet. Don't give in. Just chuckle. Don't get angry either. So, All of Pharaoh's boasting don't make God small, you see. It just magnifies his power. And one simple blast of his nostril, and down they go, powerless against the raging sea. And in the whirlpools and the waves, they sink, bimsalute. Down they go, just like a piece of heavy lead. Phrase number four, God of wonders. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. 
Now we get down really to the nitty-gritty of the song. Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really worth following? That's the question. Now, sure, he can beat Pharaoh, but is he the supreme Lord? Out of this whole song, these are my favorite two verses. I often pray this. Who is like God? The heavens are his throne and the earth is a footstool. And the answer is no one, no body, no thing. Here's Psalm 89 and verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Jehovah, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can be compared to Jehovah? Who among the heavenly beings is like Jehovah, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones? Remember, he is Lord of hosts and awesome above all who surround him. O Jehovah, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Jehovah, with your faithfulness all around you. He is Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. The, the psalmist then goes on through the rest of the psalm to say that he rules the raging sea. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator and sustainer of life, that he is righteous and just and he rules in faithfulness and in love. And he says, our shield is the Lord. You know, the reason that the Israelites are singing their song of thanksgiving is that they know that they serve the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. You know, people search for truth all over the place. Muhammad, Buddha, Hindu gurus, secular progressivism, every, every possible place. And the psalmist says there's no one like Yahweh, no one like the Lord of hosts, no one like Lord Sabaoth, no one like his right, right hand. And so I always ask this question, where is Muhammad? Well, he's dead. And where is Buddha? Dead When he died, he told them to never stop striving. Where, where are all the Hindu gurus and, and the human philosophers? They're all dead. You see, Jesus alone is alive forevermore. We sang of the resurrection this morning. He is at the Father's right hand. Jesus alone is the risen one who doesn't simply point the way to God, but is God in the flesh who gives his life so that we might have life. And so you see, that's why Psalm 89, I started in verse 5, but if you go back and read that psalm, you find out that it's a song of thanksgiving and joy for God's steadfast love. The, the psalmist sings, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. If you got gray hair and you're my age, you remember when we used to sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. It's from that psalm right there. I will sing. What is the source of Israel's praise? It is God's greatness, his mighty power. But it's also, you see, his goodness and, and, and his greatness and, and his faithfulness which is established in heaven itself. You see, it is the, his nature, it's his attributes, it's part of his character to always be true and to always be loyal to his people, to his promises, to his word. You know, children pray at dinner time. A, 
My granddaughter, Catherine, prayed over our Thanksgiving meal. We had 20 of us there. She's three years old. They're in a little preschool program. We teach children to pray, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen, right? Pray that with me. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. You see, if God were great but not good, well, he could do whatever he wanted, but, but then he would be terrifying and unworthy of our trust or our love. Only fear. That's the God of the Hindus. Shiva, the destroyer, is in place of Jesus, the redeemer. So the worship at the temples, it's a zero-sun game. I need to make sure that I'm not cursed or destroyed and you are in my place. So I go to be a better and more reverent participant than you to make sure I'm okay. That's what happens when you have a great God, but he's not good. On the other hand, if God were good, but he's not great, well, then he's just George Burns, an old grandpa in a movie and who, who gives love but needs help getting the job done. You see, that's not God. Our God is the faithful and loving Lord Sabaoth. And that, my friends, is the foundation and basis for our thanksgiving over the holiday of thanksgiving and on the first Sunday in Advent. He is great and he is good. And that takes us to phrase five, the God of the future. Look again at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and all the inhabitants of Canaan, Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Jehovah, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Yahweh, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Now the song turns from God's present power to his future power on behalf of his people. And I, I don't know if you noticed this. I know the English majors did. There's a gradual shift of tenses in the song. It doesn't go from present to future. It goes from future to past. This is called the prophetic past. In other words, the prophet speaks as if the future has already happened. That's how sure he is of Jehovah's might. Listen, they're at the Red Sea right after the crossing, and they're going to be at Mount Sinai for a whole year before they head to the Promised Land. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites don't even know yet that they're coming, but they will. You see, and their hearts will melt at the power of God revealed in his people. All you have to do is read the story of Joshua crossing the sea, and you'll know that the whole deliverance of the wandering in the Red Sea has already been made known in Canaan. 
And you see what they're celebrating here is that God is the Lord of the past and the present and the future. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He works his purposes out, and that includes his people abiding in the shadow of his presence in the sanctuary of rest in Jesus. You see, when we speak of the future blessings of God, we, we may not be as quite as sure as Moses was about the details, but, but we can be sure about God's character, for it never changes. We know that our Redeemer lives, that he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. You know, one of the real differences between believers and unbelievers is that believers have a heart of thanksgiving. We know that our Redeemer is Lord of the past and Lord of the future. So we have thanksgiving and we have hope. Is that you? Does your prayer life focus continually on your hurts, your pangs, your struggles, your issues? Or have you learned to sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary and be filled with thanksgiving? Do Christians wait until November's holiday to give thanks, or does it flow from our hearts? Well, what's on your list this year? You know, I did a little homework, so let me see if I can help you. I'm going to break one of the preacher's rules and just read for you a list that I've made of reasons for Thanksgiving. Don't tell my preaching professor. Thanks can, well, you might not be alive, right? Thanks can and should be offered to God in the name of Christ on behalf of pastors. Can I get the amen? That wasn't very loud. In private worship, in public worship, after completing great efforts, before trying great things, in small things, in large things, as a remembrance of God's holiness, for the goodness and mercy of God, for our daily bread, for the gift of salvation in Christ, for Christ's power and reign, for God's choice of you to be his child. Thanksgiving for how God works, how God's word works in people's lives, for being set free from the bondage of sin, for victory over the struggle with the flesh, for the resurrection and the triumph over death and hell, for wisdom and strength, for growth and love for Christ and love for each other. Thanksgiving for the triumph of the gospel, for the conversion of others, of faith and love that others exhibit, for God's grace working in other people's lives. Hey, for God's grace working in your own life, for the zeal that others display. Thanksgiving for the nearness of God's presence, for the great rewards that God gives, for the real and lasting joy that comes from knowing Christ, for peace that passes all understanding, for God's continued sheltering, for his fatherly discipline and love when we sin. Thanksgiving for the struggles and trials of life that help us grow in dependence upon him and less on us so that we can say with John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase for his great and precious promises, for the opportunity to be God's servant, for the chance to do ministry, for the prosperity that allows you to give and and give generously during Advent. And of course, 
thanksgiving for your family, your friends. Beloved, this is just a short list. When you consider God's mighty power for who he is and all that he does for us, a a list is easy. Because thanksgiving beats in the heart of the child of God. Now here's the bad news. The bad news is that maybe you're not really thankful. At least not really to God. And and maybe you're only thankful for the things that seem good for you. Beloved, maybe you're struggling with Thanksgiving this year. Because when you look at your life, all you can see is Pharaoh on one side and the Red Sea on the other. I can tell you that as long as you, ho- as you focus on Pharaoh, you will never feel thanksgiving. All you will feel is fear. M- maybe you're struggling with thanksgiving because you don't believe that God is good or that Jesus is Lord. Well, that's really bad. I, I have to tell you, and I have to warn you, that, that, that the future is not bright for you without Jesus as your only hope and friend. Now, that's the bad news. But there is good news, beloved. It's an, it's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of fear and a lack of thanksgiving. And Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life and to drive a stake into the heart of fear and to throw our sins into the abyss with a huge bim salute, you see. And he gives us eternal life and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. So I invite you this morning to turn from yourself and your short-sightedness and your fear and your sorrow and put your trust alone in Christ. Look up, my friends, and see the glory cloud that is blocking the way for Pharaoh and see the wind of God's spirit making a way through the sea of disappointment. You see, God works his purposes out for the good of those who love him. It might not be your purpose that he's working out, you see, but he is working out his purpose, and it is good because he is both great and good. And you know, don't you, beloved, that the song of Moses, well, it turns into the song of the Lamb in the New Covenant, and you can find it in Revelation 5. Turn there with me as we finish this morning. Revelation 5. And verse 9. And the people of God are gathered before the throne and before the Lamb. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. And then I looked, 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And that my friends is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you that your throne is established in faithfulness and righteousness and that your love is always steadfast. Even even when we are faithless, Lord, you are still faithful. We thank you for a weekend of celebration. Thank you even for the deals that we got on behalf of our beloved on, on Black Friday and deals to come on Cyber Monday. But Lord... Those are small pleasures. Would you lift up our eyes to see the glory cloud filled with the saints of God ever singing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you lift our eyes to see the one who is at your right hand that we might know what is true and right and good and that we would have rest this Advent season, rest and not worry. Rest in the righteous presence of your spirits in our lives and in our hearts. Would you be pleased with our meditation as you grow us in love? And would you give us hearts full of faith that we might rejoice with the heavenly choir? Fill our hearts with thanksgiving, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.